0: this is fair play justice
1: justicenews.net welcome to fair play i'm your host imran Speaking. vamj virginia marijuana justice is a community group that is dedicated to fighting for cannabis consumers cultivators workers patients and their families vamj began lobbying in virginia in 2019 to support passage of adult-use cannabis laws in the Commonwealth. Since then, VAMJ, Virginia Marijuana Justice, has been active in Richmond and across the state, educating the public and advocating for systemic changes in the criminal justice system. Michael Krawitz is also uh, a member of VAMJ and is also part of Veterans Action Council. It's an activist group of veterans dedicated to working on issues to help the veterans and their community and to benefit the mankind. And at the same time, VAMJ is striving to make a place for small cannabis businesses to grow in Virginia. They see a world where there's room for women, veterans and minorities to have a chance in the cannabis industry, which is really interesting. VAMJ believes that cannabis is often an alternative to harmful drugs that have targeted our communities. They also believe that our veterans and the elderly should have considerations and no barriers to obtaining cannabis when we know it often relieves them of symptoms of ptsd and other stresses or disorders that affect their health vmj is reforming marijuana laws in virginia to reflect those issues and they're also fighting to free those who are wrongfully incarcerated for merely having this god-given plan and joining me today is one of their co-founders of vmj michael kravitz thank you so much michael for joining me and welcome to fair play
0: well thanks for having me it's great to be here
1: so uh, tell us a little bit about VAMJ, Michael. How did it come about? What was the purpose and need to start Virginia Marijuana Justice?
0: Yeah, so um, VAMJ is is very much a uh, subsidiary of a sister organization of uh, DCMJ, and DCMJ uh, has has been a leader in nationally on on cannabis activism uh, with the organization behind the uh, Initiative 71, which was. The only marijuana initiative, the only uh, uh, legalization initiative that would create uh, adult legal cannabis that was done on a civil rights platform. And because it's the District of Columbia, of course, there's other special little factors about it uh, uh, that work in Washington, D.C. But we have MD, MJ, Maryland, Marijuana Justice, and VAMJ are subsidiaries of uh, DCMJ.
1: How did you guys start this?
0: Yeah, so uh, I, I actually, as an activist working on, on cannabis policy uh, while I was still in college, uh, we wound up working up in D.C. on Initiative 59, I think it was, which was a medical marijuana initiative mm-hmm. uh, with DCMJ. And that was when I first you know, met the leaders of DCMJ, Adam Eidinger and, and uh, Nicholas uh, and others. and really just, you know, just a fantastic group of people, uh, you know, to work with, and and um, that, that's that been, you know, just a relationship that we've kept on ever since, and uh, working in Virginia, working on uh, legalization here, and and having DC, having already legalized cannabis, uh, it's just a natural, you know, to have a mentor like that, uh, that that's so close at hand, mm-hmm. and VAMJ, uh, I think, really played a critical role, I mean, there's a lot of uh, hands in this process and a lot of a lot of work that went into the legalization here in virginia and It's not over yet the the actual legislation needs to be run through this legislature before it's done here in virginia And we've legalized it so to speak completely But yet uh, we did play quite a critical role especially in sort of the 11th hour where the legislature had actually sent the bill to the governor which would have legalized marijuana a couple of years from now, a few years from now, actually, and you wouldn't actually even be able to possess marijuana legally until that first store opened. Mm-hmm. And we said to the governor, "No, that's just not going to work. We, we want legalization now. We want to start setting people out of out of prison and setting them free now. We want people to be able to grow cannabis in their backyard now. And and this is this is you know civil rights and justice. If it really is to you like it is to us, then then you'd want to do it now. And he agreed with us and did it and actually took the power of the governor to oppose the legislature and send the bill back <laughs> with those provisions. And uh, it was a very close vote, but we actually won. And, and that's how we actually legalized cannabis on July 1st for real. You can grow cannabis in your backyard in Virginia and you can possess it and uh, you know, have a joint uh, instead of a glass of wine or whatever while you're watching TV in the evening. And, and it's absolutely legal and it's a beautiful
1: thing that's fantastic that's actually how i got to know about you guys uh you uh you and uh, your other co-founders like uh, rachel donnellan and I, I was just stunned that i heard that this group is fighting because I, I knew what was going on the governor probably one of the only good things that he's done is this uh and uh, the, um, the outgoing governor that is but but i found out about this that you guys are pushing it and you want it now, uh, of course, now. But how did you guys pull this off in a southern state where tobacco rules? How was it possible? Well, I, I've been
0: doing this stuff for a long time in Virginia, and I'm probably one of the few people that could really give you an insight to this, I'm not sure. How well I can describe it, but I have it anyway. <laughs> and, and what it is, is it, it, it's not like it would appear, for one thing. Uh, it would appear that the Republican Party was just stopping marijuana reform for the last 25 years. Uh, and the Democratic Party coming into power in both the House and the Senate, or the House of Delegates in the Senate in Virginia and the, and the governor's office prevailed. That's only part of the story. Uh, because it, really, it, it, years ago, we put in a bill with a Republican legislator. In other words, I had a Republican legislator. His name was Delegate Griffith. He's now Congressman Griffith. Mm-hmm. And uh, we convinced him. We actually helped him change his position, really, and he put in a uh, a bill, uh, pro cannabis uh, marijuana access, medical access bill. And he was the chair of the subcommittee that we were, you know, initially hearing this bill in front of. And the rest of the you know the committee was very strongly. Uh, Republican controlled and it wasn't the Republican control per se it was the fact that uh, most of those uh, Republicans were actually former prosecutors and former judges and stuff like that and it was just a brick wall I, I up to that point I had thought it was a, like a Republican thing mm-hmm. so if I had a Republican put it forward that would be the end of that but it wasn't a Republican thing it was never a Republican thing it was just these guys these guys and a few gals mostly guys that are former judges and former prosecutors that uh, literally have been a brick wall to any reform any positive movement for at least at least the last 25 years and when we got a democratic con- control through the you know full house that opened the door to reform that reform first took the place of uh, decriminalization because we actually had a bill in the legislature for six years to decriminalize cannabis Mm -hmm. so we actually were getting committee hearings and stuff and working on that and and working it through uh and just not getting anywhere because we were hitting that brick wall but nonetheless we had that bill for all that time and uh on that seventh year was this year where the legislative control changed and within that first year we were able to decriminalize cannabis that summer following we had two rolling commissions that studied legalization—one uh, internal and, and one a uh, uh, legislative panel—and they both looked at other states and they both took in a lot of evidence and then made a presentation to the legislature on options and 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 what they learned from looking around the country and looking at the issues of how you could legalize cannabis. And true to their word, the leadership in the uh, Democratic Party in in Virginia, in the Senate, and the House, uh, were able to. Uh, come up with a bill and send it to the governor's desk uh the the you know there's a side story to all this uh which is that the governor was caught in a a very embarrassing situation where he had uh rather disgracefully yeah gone out in public in in a a black face uh outfit that is just not acceptable anymore it wasn't ever acceptable but it certainly isn't acceptable now and and uh that I think was the critical thing in, in everything, because there was a couple of, uh, of legislators uh, that I think really had already a lot of ideas about what they could do, but uh, was, would be held back by the governor. And I think the governor on the you know the racial equity issue uh, was put in a position where he couldn't say no.
1: Mm-hmm. So it was it was also an act of God that occurred this thing to happen it feels like that doesn't it yeah because you know for all those listeners who have no idea what occurred if you if you don't mind before we get into the hard stuff i I just wanted you to because you know you're you're from the 70s so you know that there was a time when this country's biggest one of the biggest crops were hemp and cannabis was was treasured and it was used across the board in so many things until obviously the the PVC technology, the pipes and the plastics came in and, and, and screwed up everything. But tell us, why, why was this plant created by God, banned in the United States of America and not those things that kill people, literally, like meth, like cocaine, like LSD. And like guns and alcohol, which are just, you know, all around the country.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's actually, in my mind, I mean, there's a lot of different answers and you can make it as complicated as you want, really. But there's actually a fairly simple answer. And that is that um, there was an opportunity and people went for it to use uh, people's behaviors, people's attitudes, people's uh, even cultural uh, identity and, and rituals and practices of that culture against them, and this has been something that's been weaponized for a while—at least a couple hundred years that I know of—in uh, you know, active terms. Mm. And it's not just marijuana, it, and that's the thing. Like back in the days that you're talking about, which was you know around 1900, 1920, 1930, um, there were wars, right? And and one of the things that we took back as a spoil from war, from World War One, yeah. was some patents on synthetics and nylons and and things that we took back uh, from Germany as spoils of war. And we liked uh, having these things as a society. The society itself, at that time, was uh, in favor of uh, chemicals, and chemicals made your life better, and chemicals made your world cleaner, and chemicals were safer, and chemicals were Edible and chemicals would make food better. And chemicals, you get my drift. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that was not the companies telling people that they wanted to do. That it was the people telling the companies they wanted to do that. And spoils of war made that even more easily accomplished. But it was something that was probably going to happen anyway. And here comes, you know, the the prohibitionists, if you want. Mm -hmm. But they weren't just saying, oh, marijuana's bad. They were saying everything's bad. Marijuana's bad. Tobacco's bad. Nicotine's bad. Alcohol's bad. Sex is bad. This is bad. That's bad. But they were just throwing everything at the wall, and what stuck is what they ran with. Mm -hmm. And it never really stuck. You know, alcohol stuck for a while, right? We had alcohol prohibition for a while Mm -hmm. until it just created chaos, and the people that started alcohol prohibition realized that it was doing more damage than, than good and it was certainly not achieving the ends that they had intended, so they ended it. But marijuana prohibition is a weird war because it started 100 years ago, and it really only kicked in, you know, about 30 years ago, 40, 50 years ago. Hmm. The war on drugs, right? Hmm. President Nixon's war on drugs. Reagan. Reagan. So the people that were alive when this prohibition started, they, they're just they are not even alive anymore. I mean, nobody that was around in 1900, 1910 as an adult is around anymore. So there's nobody that remembers what it was like before cannabis prohibition. But before cannabis prohibition, cannabis was on the shelf in the pharmacy. And I don't mean like just a cannabis product, I mean like a lot of cannabis products. And that was all wiped out off the, off the, off the shelves. But again, it wasn't just the government coming in and taking these products away, it was also a lot of consumer sentiment that went into this process as well, because at that time, You went in the doctor's office and you got a shot and if you didn't think you got a good service if you didn't get a shot and as you know you know cannabis doesn't work that way it's not an injection it's a it's a plant material and that was a big problem for cannabis also the fact that in the early 1900s they were just starting to really perfect the uh, ability to produce a reliable cannabis product uh, you have to understand they didn't discover the active ingredient in cannabis, THC, until the 1960s. Mm. So they were doing a lot of guesswork back then as to whether it even had active ingredient in it. They actually tested it on dogs, interestingly, back in 1930s mm-hmm. But that's the thing, you know, uh, cannabis prohibition is just, a, I would call it, almost an accident of history. But it's based on the will of the people, the intent, the uh, ill intent, racism, some of our more baser... Nasty inclinations, but this is one of I would call a trio where we went after uh, black people, African Americans, for cocaine. Uh, we went after the Asian Americans and the and the people that were coming and working on our trail trains and railways, from China and elsewhere with their opium, and we went after them for that. And uh, and and cannabis was the uh, bag of plant material that was being dragged across the southern border by our uh, Mexican friends and. Uh, That was it. They were Mexican. They were coming across the border. What can you go after it for? Nothing else. Well, how about that marijuana? It's a convenient tool.
1: So, how has been the state and and the federal government's response to what you guys are doing? I mean, a lot of people must be pissed off. Not at
0: all. No. Well, the thing is that, you know, what (laughs) what we've been doing uh, as a movement has been at the national and even international level. Uh, You have to look at it all in one big picture, even though it's kind of difficult to do. But we started with the first marijuana initiative back in 1971 in California, Prop 19 number 1. There was a Prop 19 number 2 in the the 90s. You
1: you were involved in that, too?
0: I've I've got people that I work with on a regular basis that were involved in
1: 1971,
0: yeah. All right. Yeah, but I wasn't there. I was not, even on that side of the country, it was a California initiative back in 1971 mm-hmm. interestingly the proposition 215 which was 1996 that kicked off you know this modern medical marijuana movement
1: mm.
0: that was the 13th initiative as I understand it in, in California and all the other 12 had failed
1: wow.
0: that's a lot of effort and a lot of years <laughs> to, to move the ball forward before we finally got any traction but but my point is that since proposition 215 We've had uh, over 30 states that have modern medical cannabis laws, and what is it, 17 or 18 states now already that have uh, adult-regulated uh, access for non-medical or, or not necessarily medical access of cannabis. Um, so that's, that's, you know, we're not fighting with the government. We are the government. I mean, we, we're, we're, how, many, how many states are there in this country? You know, there's only a few states left that don't have any kind of cannabis policy. If if it's not a CBD policy or a cannabis policy, it's a hemp policy. Hemp policy crosses every border because it's federally legal. Got that just a few years ago, 2018, I guess it was, farm bill. Mm -hmm. So at this point, we've legalized cannabis, at least the low-THC hemp variety, nationwide, and we've already set so much movement forward on reform that there's not much of the federal government left that isn't working for us, uh, representing us coming from states with very active and proactive programs. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to be against something that your state is in favor of when you're a elected representative of those people.
1: So what you're saying is that when the people sentiment becomes strong, then the lobbies, uh, no matter what kind of lobby we're talking about, alcohol or tobacco or or the pharmaceutical lobby, and, and and those in the government who've been supporting those lobbies—they don't stand a chance when the government when the people's sentiment changes.
0: Well, I don't know about that, but there's an old saying: uh, the, the people lead and the government follows. You know, uh, and, and and there's also uh, something that my colleague here in Virginia, Lennis Worth, uh, the great, uh, also founding member of VMJ, a uh, really great lady, uh, historian, activist, going back all the way to the 1980s, uh, way before I got started. And uh, she taught me about a concept called cultural lag. And I thought it was a really great thing to learn about because with, in activism, you know, it's hard to have a goal that's meaningful. It's hard to, you know, what going you do, legalize in five years, and then you don't legalize in five years, then what? You're totally depressed because you didn't succeed, right? So a goal that you could actually succeed at is kind of hard to come by. And what she taught me was that there's a certain lag, a cultural lag, where the, the public, the people, have already discovered this. They've already started towards this, this change, but the politics just haven't caught up yet. The government just hasn't, the policy, you know, hasn't quite caught up yet. And that time in between those two points is a cultural lag. And we as activists, if we can shorten that cultural lag, then that that's something that we can achieve and that's something that's worth doing. Mm-hmm. But that, that that's the way it always works. I mean, it's not, the, the idea that the government is some different entity and that we're going to oppose it or support it is already itself a defunct concept. We we, we are the, the you know the, the we are the government, you know, the we the, we the people thing is real. And it, it's been thrown around in a lot of very I'd say abusive ways lately, but it's very true that we are the government and the states send representatives to the Congress and they represent our states and up until rather recently, this was a very polite and mutually Uh, A mutually beneficial relationship that we had uh, between our states and between our officials and between ourselves, where we were all working for the common good. And I don't know when we got off the rails exactly, but it was fairly recently uh, that that happened.
1: Yeah, I mean, this happens when uh, the government uh, does not do what you're saying. No, no, no. no.
0: I I strongly disagree with that. I strongly disagree with that. the, The thing is that There is no government to not do what you're saying. To have that saying would be to have a separation between the government and the people. There is no separation between the government and the people. There's no separation between me and you. There's no separation between any living things. Those separations are, are, I think, uh, an illusion in the end. Uh, We are all living things in a living environment, Uh, in fact, a closed environment. Uh, From the outside perspective, uh, we're all one organism, including the earth itself. So anyway, the government is the people. Mm -hmm. The government does what the people want it to do. Believe me, the people want what's happening in the government. And, And you know, there are differences of opinion about what policies we should take and stuff like that, but this concept that there is this entity or driving force behind the scenes or a cabal, or coalition, or a
1: conspiracy
0: uh, that you know, spans centuries and spans uh, continents. And, and somehow, this is a cabal that does things that the people then have to oppose is the food of, of some really terrible uh, regimes of our world.
1: I uh, actually absolutely disagree with you, okay. but both of us, you know, both of us uh, both of us can agree to disagree, but one of us has to be true, not both of us can be right.
0: Well, you know what Tyler Strait said, two men say they're Jesus, one of them must be wrong.
1: Two men say they're Jesus?
0: That's a Tyler Strait's lyric. It, it, the lyric goes, two men say they're Jesus, one of them must be wrong, something like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, both of them can be right, of course, you know.
0: No, they yeah. can't. Of course yeah. not. So I mean, unless they're looking at a pyramid.
1: Yeah, guess. I don't know. Uh, uh, how much do you like really uh, go out and interact with those uh, at least millions of them who are wrongfully incarcerated? Out of the two point two million people who are wrongfully incarcerated by the U.S. government, yeah, the the clo- there is no data out there. The closest the re- report uh, that we have is close to half a million people. So, <laughs> I understand what you're saying, but your government is not always doing what you want them to do.
0: Well, I mean, you're talking about a population that's been disenfranchised. Uh, those are not participants in our... In our uh... Yeah,
1: yeah, talk, talk to their family members and, and meet them one-on-one, then you'll know, uh, you know what's, what's
0: going on. No, 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 I'm talking, about, I'm talking about the fact that they're not able to vote in many cases, uh, in all cases, in prisons. Uh, In many cases, after prison, you still have to... uh, Depends on locality as to how your voting rights uh, work. But nonetheless, um, I was very carelessly and and, uh, maybe callously uh, not thinking about the people that were disenfranchised and the fact that they have no say in government and the government isn't representing them. It's not even a representative democracy for people that are in prison. And if you imprison people based on their race or based on their uh, income status, or based on their behavior, their rituals, culture, and practice, uh, then in fact you are disenfranchising people as an act of genocide. Um, so, you know, I think there might be a lot more room to agree between the two of us than you think.
1: First of all, when you guys were trying to legalize it, why did they push it to three years? I mean, what were they waiting for?
0: Uh, this is all about uh, setting up the regulated uh, uh, program and thinking it through and doing it right, recognizing the fact that they were going to take a whole year just to pass the bill. I said that really quickly before, but let me kind of make that clear. What became legal on July 1st became legal on July 1. Uh, you can grow plants in your yard. You can possess it. You can even share it with friends, um, but you can't sell it. There's no sales of any kind. The sales and all the regulated stuff has to be voted on again and then has to be set up and been implemented and uh, this is actually a fair amount of time to do that and to do it right and to do it carefully they gave themselves a little bit extra time so it's not really that crazy to put it out a couple years uh, especially you know given the special iterative process of having a whole other year just to pass the thing uh, which is this year and that's going to be interesting you know we're going to be right there doing this again basically this year the whole process from last year. Um, but that's where we're at, um, and, and many states have done that, but uh, other states have actually made it where you weren't able to possess legally until that first sale, and that was one of the things that we were very much, you know, sort of on guard against, and that was why we worked so proactively to see that, you know, if you're going to legalize it, then start the criminal justice reform now. Don't wait
1: a few years. But, you know, when, when they have record of 18 or more states already doing it, I mean, they don't have to wait three years to catch up. They could have just done it in a couple of months at least the basics of what other states are doing uh, don't you think that would have made more sense
0: you know um i agree with you i mean it, what you're saying makes a lot of sense to me on a, on a lot of levels but i'm actually in this process uh, I've, I've got a seat on the council of it's called the virginia public health advisory council so i'm actually a member of the of the cannabis control authority sort of board of advisors Ooh. um and, and uh you know, I'm on the inside looking at how this is, is unfolding, and,
1: you know, No wonder we disagree on so many things.
0: Well, I don't know. I'm, I'm appointed there uh, as a... I'm appointed to that position as a veterans advocate, specifically uh, for my veterans advocacy experience. So we might not be so different. But anyway, the thing is that, that uh, this council gives me an inside view. It puts me right in the middle of this process, and I could tell you that there's a lot of very important things that we're going to have to resolve, and Virginia you know it's the first state in the south to legalize but it's also the home of the DEA it's a very significant military presence so us legalizing is a big deal and Mm I you know I don't have any trouble with uh, people that want to do this carefully I have trouble with people want to drag their feet slow us down keep us from doing what we need to do yeah sure but I'm not going to be you know the the one that's going to really throw up a huge fight just because you you're, you're really want to do this carefully. In a state that has been so you know, obstinately against reform for 40 or 50 years, we're going to work steadily towards reform now, uh, unless the, the process gets derailed this year. And back to the Republican Dem- Democratic Party thing, I don't think that's going to be an issue. You can come back and haunt me on this, uh, you know, predict <laughs> later if I'm wrong. But I don't feel that the Republican Party are going to be in the position that they used to be in. Uh, where these, uh, like I said, handful of former judges and former prosecutors can sort of run roughshod over the process, back then they could always say, well, they're being tough on crime, or you know, they're trying to stop drugs. But now they'd be seen as slowing down progress, uh, preventing us from creating jobs. Uh, so I, I think that it might be a little different dynamic for them now.
1: So what about those people who are in, in jail right now, uh uh, you know their state has. Just le- they should be set
0: free immediately, and this is a place where I find we would probably have strong agreement.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean because you know uh, a lot of their families talk to me, and I get uh, you know I'm an uh, active uh, uh, person on JPay, where you know you know you'd have to spend your own money to be able to connect with these gentlemen. They, some some of them can read or write. Some of them don't have the even the money to put on the book so they can call me. So, you know, what's going on in that regard? I mean, it it, kind of doesn't it uh, doesn't it feel weird that a state where they've incarcerated these people, uh, uh, probably uh, a couple of thousand of them for uh, for less than an ounce. And uh, these guys are in prison and they don't know when they're going to get out.
0: Yeah, the marijuana policy in Virginia has Steadily arrested and and prosecuted, um, I think it was uh, 20 or 30,000 per year, I think was the number, if I remember correctly. And that, you know, think about that, for not one year, two years, or five years, or 10 years, but for the last 50 years, those kind of numbers, um, the the damage done by the arrests and the disruption of people's lives and their families' lives by the arrest is so bad all by itself without the specter of even being in prison, um, those who are in prison should be immediately set free. The the process that they're doing right now is, uh, they immediately, um, the the, um, uh, charges that were in their system that were uh, uh, just uh, very, very simple possession charges that were on people's records were immediately uh, just erased from the system, as I understand it. Um, and then they're working on the um, you know, lower level offenses, and then from there, the more higher level offenses, I guess, in, in, that, in that way. But the way that they've laid this out, and the way that I've seen, and, and it's been presented to me, uh, the, the, you know, the way that they're doing this at the state level internally within the, within the uh, governor's office, and within the uh, administration, is just too slow. It's too slow for us, and that's why we're protesting that's why we want to go and we will go to the governor's mm-hmm. uh, office and, and uh, mansion uh, next month and protest to speed this process along and, and and free people who are incarcerated for marijuana offenses there, there should never be a circumstance where people are in prison for marijuana charges and looking out the you know prison window at people who are doing the exact thing that they were doing and are being hailed as uh, entrepreneurs and, and and making lots of money Uh, Legally and and with the full support of the state, doing the exact same thing that they were incarcerated for—that's completely and completely and totally unacceptable—and it just shouldn't happen. um, That we actually get to that point where we have the stores open, Um, but that's a long time from now. And even that, as a as a deadline, you know, the ultimate uh, deadline—I hope we don't reach it. I, I really hope that we can instigate them to move this process along and make sure that we've done the best that we can. And there's even, you know, beyond the actual people that are in uh, prison for marijuana, you got to also think about the people that are back in prison because of marijuana.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's
0: a whole another category where, you know, you have your full sentence for some other crime that was thrown back in your face because they drug tested you for marijuana while you're on probation or parole. So the, the, these things are a little harder to get into the system and unravel. But believe me, this is this is something that. Uh, we consider incredibly important and we're focusing on it as a movement as well as our organization
1: that's fantastic because a couple of months ago when I got some messages from VAMJ about a phone call call call-a-thon I I replied to them I said we need a street uh, voice-a-thon you guys need to be out there all of us should be out there the people and the organizations and raising our voices because that's how they they listen
0: well there's also a, a thing about that we found that at some point during that day Uh, they we filled up their voicemail (laughs) and they weren't answering the phone so we we're not even sure they know how many people actually called in and uh, we're not sure that they actually felt the full uh, uh, you know effect of the of of the voice there from the citizens of uh, of Virginia so that's a big part of why we're going to be going to the Capitol is to make sure that they actually do hear from us yeah uh, and that we we make ourselves available to the media etc
1: I I, uh, worked for the government for over a decade Mm -hmm. and this is a tactic uh, uh, because a sensible person listens to the voicemail and then takes notes and deletes them so that there's room for more. But they they don't do this. They leave <laughs> it. They leave it like that to slap you on the face. Uh, it works.
0: It, it works quite well because I felt very slapped. <laughs>
1: yeah. Do, uh, do, uh, does VAMJ uh, uh, or any other organization actually have uh, a number uh, on on the uh, how many people are in prison for marijuana possession in Virginia?
0: No, we don't have that the good data on that yet. That's part of the problem uh, mm-hmm. that we're working on with the yeah. with the uh, you know Bureau of Prisons and everybody. Um, the, the last prisoner project uh, came in and and uh, working with uh, another organization by a similar name, Marijuana Justice in Virginia. Uh, did a really great presentation before the legislature and really dug into the numbers and, and, and looked at uh, at everything okay. um, as well. So we've got some pretty good eyes on this. And um, yeah, th- there's some real issues with uh, the you know the the uh, the ability to just do this. You know, it, it, would, it would be nice if we could just do this, just you know hit your button and, and make it happen. But it sounds like it's actually going to be a bit of work. Uh, but they need to make it happen. You know, it's, it's work. Do it. Right?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, if you're wealthy and you know people, then you can get off the hook just like that. But if you're a poor black or brown guy, then you're kind of screwed. And I know you you did mention about the marijuana justice from Chelsea Hicks, right? I mean, she did talk about the failure to address resentencing, which is like, what? Where does this state government live in on, on another uh, location besides the earth that, you know, they completely forgot about the resentencing part? Because what you just said earlier is exactly what I had heard, that, hey, I'm in prison, and this guy that I know called me up that he's going to make a lot of money selling legal marijuana. So uh, it is kind of sad. Talk about a slap in the face, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it, it's more than that. It's, it's gut-wrenching, too. But, I mean, in term, you are in there. You, you know what's going on. So how is the policy being enacted? or or is it really being enacted? Something really happening?
0: We're making stuff happen. (laughs) Uh, VAMJ handed out about 25,000 cannabis seeds uh, that we brought down from uh, our activists in in D.C. that grew them legally and were able to share them legally. And then uh, our activists uh, carefully walked them across the bridge there breaking federal law and open plain sight and with press releases advanced to the <laughs> to the police and to the authorities that we were going to do it and uh, uh, the DEA nobody really took us up on trying to harass us we're going across the bridge with with marijuana but uh, nonetheless we brought the seats down in Virginia and handed them out and uh, uh, handed them out to thousands upon thousands, upon thousands of Virginians yeah. and it seems like we started something uh, because uh, at this point, there are now at least four different uh, sort of structural seed giveaway things that are happening in Virginia, uh, and hundreds of thousands of cannabis seeds are being given out. The Seeds that will grow hemp plants that are high in CBG or CBN or CBD, cannabis plants that are high in THC or have beautiful varieties of uh, different terpenes and, and mixes that produce different uh, effects uh, for high or for... Uh, for medicine and uh, those are being cultivated right now across the state well not right now you know so much uh, as uh, in the spring and uh, yeah this is this is something where this is going to continue to grow very organically very quickly Uh, the government can either you know, do what they said and get this market up and, and running or we will wind up with a very interesting uh, uh sort of home grow state. <laughs> but either way, uh we're we're going to be uh we're going to be seriously uh growing a
1: lot of weed next year. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh you know, I I have a question for you uh from one of our our listeners and uh, this guy, you know, he goes out to DC to get his uh, cannabis He can get it in Virginia And then, you know, he, yeah, he, he He takes an Uber Because he doesn't have a car So he spends 50 bucks going there And then 50 bucks coming back And then obviously the, 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 the Cost of uh, good Cannabis in, in D.C. Vary, so we're talking about A couple of hundred bucks here so when do you think that day would come that people in Virginia wouldn't have to go cross borders, which is also, I heard, illegal? You can't cross border. You can't take uh, cannabis across the border. Well,
0: that's the that's that's federal, you know, that's the federal authority is when you cross the border. The, the interesting thing is that if you go in, in Virginia and get a medical cannabis certificate and Uh, make yourself eligible uh, through the cannabis program here in Virginia, get the card for Virginia to to get medical cannabis right now, which is legal right now, Uh, you can then uh, not only purchase cannabis in Virginia, which probably isn't going to help the the person that you're talking to, because there's not that many of these dispensers on the state. It would be purely by luck or by chance that there was one rather close. But nonetheless, you get this uh, license, this card in Virginia, and they actually recognize it up in D.C. So you can go, they reciprocate, you can go to to DC to the medical cannabis dispensaries up there and purchase cannabis there. Nonetheless, it is crossing a border where uh, technically, I guess you'd have to say technically, you're violating federal law. Uh, we haven't seen the federal government take us up on that. Uh, <laughs> and, and I don't really see the federal government arresting any individuals. I, I, could, I, I don't know how that would even happen. You maybe get pulled over on a, a speeding ticket in the middle of the bridge or something like that, right at the very center of the bridge with your... I, I don't know. Because on either side of the very center of the bridge, in D.C., you're legal, as long as you're carrying it the way you're supposed to be carrying, it. and the same in Virginia. So you're legal on both sides. You're only illegal for that fraction of a second as you cross from one to the other.
1: That's true. But don't you think, uh, because critics have been saying that, you know, these med- medical marijuana programs are just sideshows. I mean, why not just be as smart as Canadians and legalize this whole thing, just like what they've done with alcohol, tobacco, vaccines, and other uh, uh, pharmaceuticals that kill people?
0: Yeah, I get you on the kill people stuff. I mean, the, the government seem to be a lot more uh, at ease given us oxycodone, right? Uh, or whatever. Pentanil, mm-hmm. uh, whatever. But, uh, but yeah, that's the way it is. But uh, <laughs> we're changing it. Hopefully we're, we're changing that. But uh, Canada, you'll find it very interesting that they still have a very strong medical cannabis program. And the thing that you'll find interesting is that veterans up there can actually get their cannabis through that program paid for through their veterans benefits.
1: That's cool. So
0: that's one of the big problems in the USA is, you know, veterans uh, have their health care at the VA. That's sort of you know dialed into their finances you know the, that they have the health care taking care of at the va so for them having to leave the va and go get a doctor outside the va and then pay for all the medicine outside the va that usually creates a financial hardship for for the vet hmm. uh or, or i'd say usually yeah what the heck usually i'll go for usually uh but so up in canada you can actually order your cannabis uh, by phone you know with your uh your uh certification from your doctor and everything and and have it delivered to your house uh, under the veterans program and it's also legal you know for adult regulated access people can show their id and buy uh cannabis
1: yeah yeah like this guy this guy texted me i when it became legal i said hey man congratulations and he said yeah now i go buy it and i get a receipt
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: so so it is fascinating i'm going to come to the veterans i just had one more question in regards to Uh, incarceration what do you think is the process of clemency for those who are incarcerated for marijuana possession
0: well that's another thing that we're working on because we don't think it's appropriate for somebody to have to uh, you know go and pay for expensive legal fees uh, or for that process to be onerous even uh, that requires such you know uh, attorney uh, support to be able to handle it Uh, that's that's something that we're, we're very strongly encouraging the governor as well to do is to provide uh, legal services and and make it so that these processes aren't onerous for the people that are trying to clear their name
1: yeah uh, because for some stupid thing I ended up in 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 a court some time back it was bad driving habit but uh, I'm learning I'm not doing that anymore but the surprising thing what I saw in the court as I was waiting for my uh, turn with my attorney there was a line of people coming, all of them obviously black people. And everyone was just being hauled in for marijuana possession. And some of them were out of state and they had to quit their work or leave their work and attend like come from Atlanta because they were caught with a joint. And uh, it it was just mind blowing for me to stand there and see one, two, three, four, probably a dozen of them, uh, all of them black, of course, uh, I didn't see a white guy or a brown guy like me, and, uh, the, uh, and I met them at, outside the court. And then, you know, this was all before I started doing justice news, but it, it, it showed me that if it, no matter what the law is right now, if you are black or brown and you are caught with a joint uh, in Virginia, probably you're going to end up in a lot of trouble. Would that be wrong to say?
0: Well, you know, this is the thing. It, it, it's not written into the law. Uh, it doesn't say in the law, you know, that, that uh, you, you have to arrest so many African American people per month, or or that African American people are, 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 you know, somehow uh, should be, you know, surveilled. Or I mean, none of that is actually written in the law. But nonetheless, it seems sure seems that way, doesn't it? Right? Uh, and and the thing is that. Uh, the, the uh, enforcement, it ratchets up. I, I found it very interesting, the statistics on it. So the, the likelihood that, you know, an average uh, uh, person who was white uh, and the average person who was black, their, their average drug use is going to be roughly the same. But yet the chance of that uh, African-American person being arrested is higher. But then as they go into court the chance of them being prosecuted is higher than that. The statistics go up, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then the chance that they would go to jail is higher than that. So it's like each step of the way, the the percentage increases. It's an even greater likelihood that they're going to get prosecuted, even greater likelihood than that, that that the average uh, white person would face uh, getting uh, uh, actually incarcerated. So each of these statistics jumps, and you wind up with this huge disparity where you see that kind of situation where you look out on the street and you see, uh, you know, 100 people and you see, uh, you know, a a rational percentage of uh, of people from different colors, but you look in the prison and you don't don't see anything near that. There's nothing even close to that uh, in the prisons, even though, again, the likelihood that they would be using drugs is roughly the same. And that's why, even though there's nothing written in the law, that's actually racist, nonetheless, uh, everyone, everyone across the board is able to look at that and, and very easily observe that the system is essentially uh, uh, racist at its, at its core. And uh, um, the, the disparities in, you know, there, there are some notable exceptions, like at one point we were fighting a, a differentiation between, well, I guess it, it was, there was a differentiation between crack cocaine and powder cocaine, so it wasn't really written in the law that you would arrest more african-american people but clearly the the use patterns cultural uh, differences made it so that arresting people for white powder cocaine at a lesser charge wound up being more white people and arresting people for crack at the greater charge wound up being more black people so it it, it, it's uh these things are you know very much uh, uh you know built kind of baked in and built in the system it's not just You know, the police officer out on the street having a bias or something like that. It's the entire system that seems to have a bias. And the only way that we can get out of that uh, is to uh, completely overhaul the system, I imagine. Mm -hmm. Uh, But with drugs, I mean, it's not like we have to overhaul the system because drugs shouldn't be illegal. I mean, the the whole notion of drug prohibition is a defunct uh, uh, concept. The, the, The simple line of argument is this. Find me one document, one research document. At all, just one solid research document that shows that drug prohibition works. Because I'll give you like eight presidential commissions, national commissions that en- it- it enlisted the entire support of the entire medical community, scientific community, and and uh, uh, legislative and 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 citizenry of of like six different countries, and those reports all came to the same conclusion that we shouldn't uh, have prohibition, that we should decriminalize, that we should legalize, that we should. Uh, you know, not follow this path. But yet, with presidents like Nixon and, and others, uh, we've wound up on this path anyway. And 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 it really is a very hateful feel to it. You know, when I'm at the United Nations and I'm hearing these countries talk about what they love about the drug war, yeah, uh, and 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 uh, the work that they're doing and how evil drugs are, it really is for them a, a, a fight between good and evil, and they're on the side of good, and they've designated drugs as evil. Uh, and And that's very problematic because uh, you know drugs are are not they're not they're they're not living things that are trying to kill us <laughs> they're there's something in a baggie <laughs> you know
1: yeah unless you know Pfizer or Monsanto starts to produce them then they then these leaders won't have any issue with with them
0: well well I don't know they 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 like it as long as you're in their box uh you know if, if you uh if you use those drugs outside of their box they sure don't like it right huh? without a prescription or you know whatever i mean it's just not, not that they just approve of those drugs because these drug makers make it they they give a very limited path for access to these things and then and then just hammer down anybody that doesn't fit in that box don't they
1: how many black people do you have on your council
0: how many black people do we have on our council we have veterans from all across the country, so we have uh, we have quite a few uh, people.
1: No, the, the council that you talk, uh, the, the you, you said that you sit on some. Oh council. no, in Virginia,
0: in Virginia, uh, the Virginia Public Health Advisory Council uh, is. Uh, uh, gosh, I'd say there's probably more uh, people there on that council uh, that are uh, black than are in the uh, public at large, really.
1: Really. Uh,
0: yeah, well, the, the the health and human services director himself, I think, is uh, African American. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, just you know, I'm sort of going around the room and looking at the faces. In my mind, we have three veterans on the panel, which is interesting. Uh, one of one of the uh, uh, persons uh, given an appointment to this council, representing the patient voice, the, the veteran uh, is a veteran, a military veteran. Uh, on the council as a medical patient and, and representing that voice. Um, that's interesting. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's actually this council. The thing about this council is it's a public health council. So there's three, there's three entities within this, uh, well, there's four, I guess I'd say, four entities within this legalization structure. One is the legislature itself, which has a, a commission, a, a legislative uh, ca- a committee uh, that meets, uh, that, that's made up of the legislators that wrote the and, and will write again this legislation for legalization. And then you have the Cannabis Control Authority, which is actually made up of employees uh, of the state that will be actually implementing and creating the regulations for legalization. How many stores are we going to have? Where are the stores going to be? How, how, how many, uh, uh, you know, uh, of this kind of uh, or that kind of things? You know, big big decisions to make uh, a lot, a lot of, on a lot of levels and within that cannabis control authority if they have something that they're working on that has some aspect of public health involved uh, like dosages uh, for example like how, how many milligrams do you want in an average candy bar that's going to be sold on the shelf you know do, do you want to control that and say, you know, you don't want to have 1,000-milligram candy bars or you want to break it up into 10-milligram slices. I mean, there's choices to be made that are have public health implications, and our public health council is going to help, uh, you know, kind of think these things through and, and basically have to sign off on anything that has to do with public health. One of the interesting things I think that we're going to have to look at as a council is uh, how, how much, like, chatter or wax or extracts will be the same amount equivalency of an ounce of flour, because it's written in the law for an ounce of flour. So you have to sort of come up with an equivalency. Uh, So it's things like that. But then there's one other thing I didn't mention yet, and that's the equity commission, Mm -hmm. which is a a freestanding commission that will be uh, actually uh, handling money is a percentage of the tax, a pretty good percentage of the tax that's going to be collected in the stores is going to be handed over to this commission to be used for uh, uh, various projects around the state in, in uh, you know, building equity in, in, um, yeah. in, in the cannabis industry. So that's that's the structure, and our council is made up of mostly you know, real high-level medical experts and, and people like that. Um, I, I'm glad I'm there, and I'm, my input will be valuable, but I'm certainly no doctor, mm. you know what I mean? It, I think it's good to be working with the doctors on this.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, is, uh, I, I wonder uh, how the the society survived without any doctor a couple of hundred years ago. Uh, this plant did exist, but uh, there weren't any doctors. There were actually medicine people who worked with plants. They observed, yeah. So I don't know what you're talking about. They observed, about.
0: yeah. They, they, they learned from the plant itself, right? They learned from, from, yeah. from uh, Gaia.
1: Yeah. My whole family is full of doctors and I tend to stay away from them. But, you know, <laughs> I hear you. I hear you
0: there, man. Yeah. But, but they, they definitely know anatomy better than I do, right? I, you know.
1: Yeah. So, uh, going back to... Uh, and even the anatomy, they know a lot of the times they get it wrong. Oh,
0: no! <laughs> oh, no!
1: Yeah. So, <laughs> going, going back to your what you're doing for the veterans, you know, uh, my pop uh, was in Vietnam and uh, so was one of... Uh, the dads of your co-founder uh rachel right and my dad okay that's fantastic so my pop you know but that's my mom's second husband right when they were spraying agent orange on him for a pretty long time you know i used to ask him because i have before he died i recorded some interviews that i will bring out when the time is right right but you know some of them make you cry because you know i would ask him pop so what did you do when they were spraying agent orange on you And he would say that, hey, I I don't know what to do, so I would just take my hanky and cover my mouth. Yeah. And I'd ask him that, Pop, what do you mean? How are you going to protect yourself from Agent Orange by putting a hanky? And he said that, uh, well, it didn't work. Yeah. And obviously, when he was saying all of this, he he already had three cancers and Alzheimer's. And, and and you know it took me some time to figure it out, and investigate because I had no idea what was going on. Yeah, I I, I didn't know uh, what the, what the government and the military did to Pop. And you know we were just thinking, you know, how the heck can a man get three cancers at a time and get the fourth thing, Alzheimer's, just like that? And uh, and and we then we dug and we found out what the hell actually happened. But. My point is that when this happened to Pop, I, you know, I tried everything that I could uh, to get him some medical cannabis at that time, which was a couple of years ago. And every single doctor, uh, including the doctors at the VA, which I didn't want to work with, but I ended up working with anyways, all of them, everyone opposed it. So uh, why do you think that is? Is that because of... Uh, the federal or state policy? Or is it because of the mindset of people that they think that cannabis is this evil monster that will destroy everything?
0: Well, first of all, let me apologize because I didn't realize, I might have heard you wrong. My father wasn't subjected to Agent Orange, but he was a military vet. Um, Oh, okay. So, you know, the first thing I'll say is just an observation from my work is that we're into a new kind of disease here with this kind of exposure stuff. You know, when I say exposure stuff, it's not just Agent Orange, it's uh, I, uh, the Iraq War uh, exposure situations, and, and even more recent with, uh, with exposures in Afghanistan. So um, yeah, this is a new kind of disease where it's not just a disease that you get and then you go away and it gets better or, or, or whatever over time, or at least you die and that's it. But uh, it's this kind of thing, it's a generational issue that will get worse over time. And, and it can actually cause uh, issues downstream, you know, to your children, even your grandchildren, and, and actually uh, has the potential, some of these things, to get worse over, over generations. Uh, so that's a very different kind of thing. And uh, But as far as your question, um, the, the situation is that most doctors don't know anything about the – there's this cannabinoid receptor system in, in our body, just like our adrenaline system or, or – or, or uh, immune system, we have this, this uh, a cannabinoid receptor system that, that's throughout the entire body. It evidently has a very strong role to play in modulating uh, the sort of the activity at a, at a systemic level of, of your pain management and your, uh, you know, your. Immune system and, and uh, you know a lot of things in your body uh, that, that have this uh, this system is essentially you know kind of you know almost running that it's it's in such an important place is yeah. it to, that it helps the the system find a a, 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 a you know equilibrium. That's it's, this is like the equilibrium building part of your of your system of your overall body and uh, but yet. Yeah, This is a very new discovery. As I said before, THC was discovered in the 1960s. Well, this is the THC system in the body. This cannabinoid receptor system was discovered in the 1990s. So it's relatively new. So you give them a little bit of credit for that. But like you said before, I think it even applies more here. When you have a new advance, it should be spread very quickly, but it's not. It's not being spread. So doctors that are coming out of medical school have never been taught this. And if you're a doctor and you wanna learn this stuff, you can, I mean, there's continuing medical education credits that you can get. But you have to learn about it and find it on your own and then go seek this stuff out on your own. The only information that's coming through the system, inside the system, is all really bad information. You know, that the drugs are bad, marijuana's bad. You know, basically just looking at it as a drug of abuse without any consideration for uh, the fact that it, it, is also a a, a therapeutic uh you know very strong therapeutic capability so that's the thing so it, it depends on who you're talking to in the medical community you're talking to some doctor that's never heard of it and all they've ever heard is marijuana's bad they're just sure it's just a drug of abuse it's just gonna you know maybe think make you think you're doing okay you know they have these i mean if you don't know anything about it you can imagine anything right so they just imagine it's some other drug, and it works like some other drug. But cannabis doesn't work like other drugs. It doesn't work like drugs at all. It's not a drug. And, and it's an herb, and, and it, we have a relationship with this plant. We have a relationship with, at, at a, at a you know, biological, molecular level. We have a relationship with this plant. Yeah. And, it, and it can do some really miraculous things for us on a, on a spiritual level, on a health-based level, on a therapeutic level, on a dietary level. Even house us. Even house us. And uh, that's the thing, you know, they just don't know that. And, you know, I think there's like three different kinds of doctors there. There's the doctor that knows about this and is a champion of it because they're an evidence-based practice. And we've got lots of those doctors. I can point to hundreds of them yeah. across the United States that really champion this and the second kind of doctor is just a a doctor that doesn't know doesn't learn yet is honest and and maybe sincere and and maybe really worried about you and just doesn't know and i i I don't really suspect there's that many of them anymore because if they're honest and sincere and really care they probably already are uh falling in that first camp but then there's that third camp uh or at least they should be heading to that camp (laughs) and then there's the third camp which i really don't appreciate and i kind of worry about we went head-to-head with them, actually, a lot um, in the psychiatric community. Uh, when we were working, Veterans for Medical Cannabis Access, which is an organization that uh, we worked with both the VA to set up and, and pass the VA marijuana policy back in 2010, but also spent about seven years, uh, 2010 and 2017, passing state laws across the country to allow cannabis to be used for post-traumatic stress. And uh, that... Uh, effort we ran into several times in several states and several battles with the psychiatric associations and psychiatric doctors Mm -hmm. and they were coming from a very uh, obvious perspective where they were in line with the federal government they they uh, have their practice centered on abuse and addiction treatment which is sort of a specialty in the medical uh, world that allows them to prescribe certain drugs that other doctors aren't able to prescribe for addiction treatment and they have a special relationship with the federal government for that reason. And I suspect that all that puts them in a position where they just have to really follow that federal government dogma more than other doctors do. I mean, that's just my theory, but that's, that's what I suspect. And they really gave us a lot of trouble. And, and the thing about their uh, opposition was it was always hypothetical. In other words, they never came to any of our you know legislative bodies or anything where, where they were objecting and, and uh, testifying against us or in the media. They never actually spoke about any patient uh, experiences. They never actually talked about any real clinical practice uh, experience. They always would talk about statistical observations uh based on hypothetical situations so in other words Mm -hmm. if you legalize it you're going to have all these more people use it and based on the fact that a certain amount of people may become addicted well you're going to have that many more people addicted and you know that kind of math and it's just really silly when you're making that kind of math in front of a whole bunch of clinicians that are standing there with their patients and their families and their communities having recognized that this is a cannabis uh, is actually working for them, helping them to use less pills, helping them have a better outcome, helping them have a better sleep at night, helping their families and their loved ones to have better quality time with them, helping them be more productive in their community, which brings out community leaders to speak, and all that against that one doctor with their wimpy ass federal government bullshit.
1: Yeah, and then later I discovered that why they were doing it, because they were pumping him up with the Revlimid, and killing him with Revlimid and the chemo because each one was billing the Medicare department. They were all billing VA and uh, 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 the, the manufacturers and charging huge uh, amounts of money when, when I saw the bills come in and I said, oh, that's what they were doing. That's why most of these doctors didn't want Pop to get a $10 plan, you know, because he would feel comfortable and relaxed and probably heal himself and not be nauseated to death. Uh, because these guys were charging three grand every visit that he made for four years, and and then you know I got agitated about this because I, I, I you know I was listening to one of your interviews uh, on Richmond Morning News, and and this anchor, uh, I don't know uh, which part of the uh, world does he live in because he said something really dumb. He was saying that, aren't you worried that we're promoting a culture of drug abuse? And I was like, what the hell does that mean? I mean, America is the world's most drugged out society where pharmaceutical companies rule. So where where does that come from? Is it is it generational that somebody, some of the people in this country, they tell their families that, hey, you know, this is bad, evil, stay away from that. Anyone who does that is evil too. Or this is the policy, or or the mandate of the government that's been just coming out, coming down the line for decades. I, I
0: think it's somewhat generational, uh, for sure. Yeah, uh, and, and it's and it's aging out as as the folks from the you know <laughs> the kind of great generation is that what they called it? Uh, my dad's age and yeah. and uh, uh, as they're aging out, uh, the, we're we're seeing less and less of this uh, of this hysteria against drugs. It's been it's been pounded into people's heads pretty well by uh, uh, programs that up until recently were even, you know, government-funded programs. Remember, you know, just your brain on drugs, right? Not that long ago. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And, and dare classes and things, uh, you know, up until very recently, really, still uh, promoting a uh, sort of an alternate reality to, to, uh, to people on marijuana. But, you know, I think the, the thing about marijuana and the thing about us veterans I think and in the, in the work that we're doing especially in veterans for medical cannabis access yeah. is we're, we're very willing and quick to accept that there are negative consequences or at least that there can be negative consequences to using cannabis that, that there is such a thing as cannabis abuse even though it's kind of rare of course, I, I've never really seen much of it in my experience and I've seen an awful lot of people use cannabis but to see someone you know actually abuse it where it actually becomes an interference with their, in their life you know an actual problem in their life their, their use of cannabis uh, that's it's imaginable and and it's conceivable and it happens and and you can point to cases of it. So I I think it's important to concede that and then face that and then and then from there then you can actually make a very you know powerful statement about the most of us, the rest of us, the vast majority of people that that, that are able to use cannabis uh, uh, with very little to to any uh, negative consequences. And 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 those negative consequences, many of them have been aggravated by government policies like. The, if you look at the historical use of cannabis back, you know, 100 years and more ago, they didn't smoke as much as we do now. Oddly enough, the the main problem that we've always had from the government about cannabis that you smoke it and smoking's bad, is actually something that was very much encouraged by the policy because when you have less of the cannabis material, you're not able to have, like, the hashish candies and stuff like that that they enjoyed 100 years ago yeah. that we're now getting back to. And a lot more people are using cannabis edible as an edible or as a food yeah. uh, or, or even uh, vaporization instead of smoking. There's a lot of things that, that people are doing instead of smoking as we legalize it, as we get further and further towards legalization. So, you know, the, the odd thing is that in so much as cannabis can be a drug of abuse, the government's policies has maximized that abuse potential and made it worse. And and uh, and, and, and discouraged us from even growing it outdoors under lights, where, you know, growing it indoors under lights is so un, 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 un environmental. you know, it's so such a negative, you know, there's such beautiful sunlight outside all across the world, and people are having to grow it in their basement under lights because they're afraid of the police. Yeah. Um, and, and, and you know, these things have very strong negative consequences for people and it's sort of baked in and, and embedded into our into our world and we're going to have to sort of grow out of it i think to, to a certain extent
1: yeah uh, because you know i mean they did legalize tobacco and you know i mean i uh, yeah, i'm in virginia i'm so close to richmond which is the hub of tobacco and everyone's just happy about it even pop used to tell me that they were given free cigarettes and you know i i remembered what he said about the cigarettes as I was trying to get medical marijuana for him, which I couldn't, you know, I had to get it from Florida and, uh, you know, secretly get it from Florida so I can give him a couple of drops and just see him ease, feel so good. You know, his appetite would open up, you know, he would smile, he would talk, his memory would come back. It was just phenomenal, but wow. but obviously, you know, when you uh, uh, when you do something like that at the last stage, I don't know how much that is going to help because I know people who have been using, who have tried it in earlier stages, and in fact, their cancers were gone.
0: Well, the the treating cancer, we we have a very high level oncologist, one of the uh, probably one of the top oncologists in the country that is working on on this uh, subject matter is actually one of our people that we've gotten to spend a lot of time with you know in in our activist camp uh uh, is a doctor out in san francisco um and uh he actually his advice was you know we know that cannabis and it's proven that cannabis has a lot of value uh giving relief to symptomatic relief you know relief of pain uh, relief of nausea you know, things like that and, and appetite stimulation these things are actually well proven uh, we've got a lot of science already done bona fide proven um, cannabis as a treatment for cancer um is, it's not that it hasn't been proven it's not that it's not real but we haven't harnessed it yet we, we we don't know you know we have a lot of different terpene profiles and cannabinoid profiles and, and uh, uh plant material from different sources and stuff like that in, in different uh, methods of delivery, like, you know, you know, Rick Simpson oil type thing or, or whatever. Um, and, and a lot of this is going to have to be uh, worked on for quite a while before we're going to be able to say, okay, use this particular plant material in this particular dose for that particular cancer, because there's a lot of different kinds of cancers, evidently. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what we've had is a, a lot of people that have uh, used a you know, significant dosage of, of uh, extracts and actually have had a very good outcome most of them that I know of have not abandoned mm-hmm. you know uh, kind of regular medicine they've they've stuck with the medicine but they've used the cannabis and uh, in many I've
1: it, seen people abandon the regular well it, 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 exactly. let me finish because yeah. in
0: many to most cases uh, they, they uh, baffle their doctors and they wind up not needing to go through all those uh, horrific uh, treatments yeah. um, so this is really interesting, you know, the, 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 uh, the organic way that these doctors are learning from the patient rather than, you know, what probably, you know, you would expect. You go to a doctor and you learn from the doctor about your, how you should treat your health. I mean, that's the way most people would expect it to be. So anyway, uh, the, the, the bottom line there is that we do see a lot of, uh, especially what I saw in, in a lot of video Uh, essays of patients, you know, taking a time-lapse video of their treatment on skin cancers. And I was just absolutely blown away at how well that worked Mm -hmm. with the strong extracts being applied right to the skin uh, and and having that. uh, Mm -hmm. There was one that I saw that was particularly interesting out in Michigan where the patient actually had one on each arm. Mm -hmm. There's a little of skin cancer. I guess they show up in various places. So the one on one arm, they treated with the doctor's, you know, Chemotherapy agent that they use for that, and the other arm they treated with the cannabis, mm. and the cannabis got really kind of looked nasty for a minute, and then it started going away rather quickly. I'm talking like eighty or whatever, something like that. It went away, yeah, cool. and in the same period of time, the the one with the chemotherapy just kept getting redder and nastier and nastier, and just you know in the end it treated it. But it, the outcome, the one arm was just perfect, no defect, and the other arm, you know, you could tell there was a considerable amount of uh, of, of work that had been done on that. So anyway, the, the cannabis seems to be a very graceful solution for those that will be able to use it. Right now, it's a little bit crude and kind of expensive because you know getting a whole bunch of that extract can be expensive for patients. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that's one of the things that we're trying to battle, and, and you know I appreciate being on this public health council for, is to take on that battle at the appropriate time to make sure that patients are gonna be able to have that kind of dosage available. That so you're not gonna to have to go into a rec store and pay premium prices plus tax. Uh, which will make it impossible for you to do that.
1: So what are the ch- some of the challenges that Veterans Action Council faces? And do you think that, isn't it kind of weird that the people who fought for this country without asking a question are the most screwed up at the end of the day because they've been abandoned, the veterans?
0: Well, the, the, the second question is too big for me to take on right now. Uh, the veterans system is one of the bigger healthcare systems in the world and uh, it's got a lot of issues. You know, there's a lot of issues to, to deal with. Some of them are probably maybe, you know, things that you would have to deal with in any hospital, and then some of them that are particularly bad in the, in, in the veteran system. So yeah, that's a whole another ball of wax. But as far as uh, uh, the Veterans Action Council, we've had some really interesting things that popped up over the last year that we've worked on. Uh, the, the last thing that jumps to mind that was fairly recent uh, was uh, a fellow that was, in uh, Alabama, a military vet with his, his family on a on a trip using uh, medical cannabis legally in California, not really thinking about the fact that they're in Alabama, uh, and uh, answered a police officer's question about marijuana by saying they had medical marijuana, showing the card and everything, and uh, faced considerable amount of jail time and. Um, we actually interceded mm-hmm. at, at one moment i i thought we might have overstepped and and uh you know because we were pretty hard on the judge and thought it might backfire and even hurt the guy <laughs> but uh it must have been good because in the end uh, uh it, his case worked out fairly well he got out of prison and went back home and uh, they just picked up his story wound up being on a, a was it uh PBS documentary, a recent uh, Nova documentary. You can you can learn about Sean Worsley's um, case. Mm-hmm. So that was one, one case that we took up. Uh, we we took up the issue of uh, lack of hospitals in Alaska. You know, lack of uh, VA facilities in Alaska, and, and looked into that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've we've uh, given input on the the uh, national legislation that's been proposed in the United States Senate. Mm-hmm. The uh, Booker Schumer Wyden discussion draft that they put in the United States Senate on cannabis, uh, we gave a significant amount of input uh, on the record. And we've, we've also uh, supplied on the record uh, input into the United Nations uh, process on, on drug control over in Vienna, Austria, uh, which is kind of cool. So and that's just off, uh, that's just off the top of my head. I mean, this is just, you know, we've only been working at this stuff for about a year and a half, but we've got a lot more I could take off.
1: So that means that, I mean, you guys are going to the UN to change world perception?
0: Well, uh, yeah.
1: (laughs) That's cool. That's really cool.
0: I mean, in the end, in the end, you know, when we go to the United Nations, we're citizens that are experiencing things that can answer questions and give input in our experience and our observations that that can help member states. If you got to look at it, I'm an Air Force vet, so I always look at it from that perspective. You know, it's a, There's an 80,000-foot perspective, and then there's a perspective on the ground. And uh, governments have an 80,000-foot perspective, and we're working on this issue on the ground. So you know, we can actually give a lot of uh, assistance to governments in seeing our perspective, which then helps them to meet the goals and needs of their own citizens. So we serve a pretty useful function inside the United Nations, and we're invited. The United Nations invites non-governmental entities to participate in, in meetings just for that purpose, to be able to be there, to, to give firsthand information about that perspective from, uh, from that uh, non-governmental perspective.
1: What do you think is the future, if there is one, for cannabis to be taken off of the controlled substance list? and it would be not a controlled substance anymore.
0: You know, that's a a, a question that I would have answered very differently years ago. It's interesting to me, because uh, when I first started as an activist, uh, we had already been working on a rescheduling petition. When I say we, the cannabis movement, Uh, led by actually a guy named Bob Randall. He's the first medical marijuana patient that fought the government and got one of those big tins of joints. I don't know if you've ever seen one of the pictures of the big tins of joints. The government still sends out those tins of joints to just a tiny number of patients that were part of this uh, early research program on marijuana. But he started it with a lawsuit and and a fight with the federal government, this guy Bob Randall, and he went to the lawyers at Normal, uh, national organization for the reform of marijuana laws at that time, or no? I think it was the for the repeal of marijuana laws at that time. Now it's the reform mm-hmm. of marijuana laws. They they went they toned it down over the years. Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, the the those guys started this petition, this lawsuit against the government in the 1970s,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: uh, I actually wound up sitting in that lawsuit in the 1990s. Man. So this is like this fight that's gone on forever. And and I would have thought when I started out that. You know, what we would wind up at the end of the day with would, would be a rescheduling uh, you know you would see cannabis be uh, treated not as a you know very dangerous control drug but more like an over-the-counter medicine something like that that's what I probably would have imagined back then but about five years ago or so we started talking about descheduling in the movement mm. and that really uh, uh, got a lot more uh, you know, sort of enthusiasm and support in the movement that I ever really would have imagined, uh, and, and uh, it's a very, very strong crescendo across the, the, the entire movement, and that's um, really translated into um, every piece of legislation now says deschedule. It doesn't say reschedule. It says deschedule. Yeah, so with a uh, absolutely the, yeah. So the Booker, Wyden, Schumer draft. Deschedules cannabis; it completely removes it from the Controlled Substances Act. And then the the uh, more recently proposed uh, the bill from the House would also uh, remove cannabis completely from the Controlled Substances Act. It, that bill, um, which is led by uh, uh, Congresswoman from um, South Carolina, is actually uh, Con- Congresswoman Mace is actually uh, written to be a uh, treat cannabis, what they call crude cannabis, as an agricultural crop which is, I think, very interesting. Um, and and uh, so anyway, there's, there's different proposals in, in Congress, and there's a lot of variations, but both of them and all of them and none of them don't have that. All of them have uh, descheduled. So I don't see us going back from that. I don't see us changing from that. I don't see uh, really any, any sort of path that would take us away from that. So I, I definitely see, you know, I don't know when it'll happen, legalization. I don't know how, you know, we're actually gonna get to the Senate, if it'll be President Biden that signs into law or the next president or, or whatever. But um, certainly it's going to be de descheduled, be removed from federal control.
1: So on behalf of all of those who are uh, incarcerated for marijuana possession and are in, in the prison across Virginia, what kind of ray of hope Can we give them?
0: We're coming for you. If you're there just for marijuana or if marijuana is uh, predominantly the reason why you're in prison, then we're coming for you. We're coming to set you free. You're listening to Fair Play on JusticeNews.news.